This is the Architecture and Innovation Podcast by Syraclad, featuring one-on-one interviews with designers, contractors, city managers, and civic leaders, as well as thought leaders committed to sustainability, innovation, and solutions that are attractive, affordable, and create healthy living environments. Our podcast eliminates the challenges, breakthroughs, and proven solutions brought to industries, organizations, and our communities. The Architecture and Innovation Podcast is underwritten by Syraclad. The Syraclad Rainscreen Fiber Cement Siding System, a proven track record of performance in Japan for nearly 40 years. Zero chemicals, triple coated and factory finished color layering. The ceramic and photocatalytic coat provides 365 day self-cleaning and a 20 year fade limited warning. This high performance siding system serves as an honored innovation with parent company Panasonic and Kubota. For more information, please visit Syraclad.com. We're honored today for our guest, Mark Schumann, architect and design principal at Anderson Brule Architects, or ABA. Mark is a design principal who, uh, I love to took this from this website, and I think it's a best describes this as who enjoys creating 21st century learning and healing, healing environments. His experience includes master planning, programming, and design for higher education, K through 12 education, healthcare, residential, and civic clients. For more information, feel free to visit their website at aba-arc.com. That's aba-arch.com. Mark, again, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for being here. Super honored. Well, it's very much a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank and you. I love again. that That's description good. of me. I, I should read our website more often. <laughs> yeah, that, it's it's terrific. I tried to write one of my own. I said, "No, oh, this best describes it." So, thank you for letting me uh, uh, work work with it. Yeah, yeah, healthy environment. Can you tell us what that means to you? I love that. It healthy environment. Oh well, this this came out of um, years ago. I realized um, what I was interested in had less to do with the sculptural aspects of what architects do. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm still as proud as ever as uh, what they look like, but um, that what we what we really create, and this came out of me actually doing an addition to my home, um, when the wood was delivered to the house, it all fit on this flatbed truck. And I realized that what architects create is not buildings, but space. That's, that's what we, we're building out of this. That, the parts fit on a truck, but what we fill the site with is space. And when I started thinking about how it houses us and the way we react in those spaces, I realized that we're not building schools, but we're building the environments that people learn in. And probably even more importantly, when you're working in healthcare, you're creating healing environments. Hopefully you're creating healing environments. Um, and that just kind of changed the nature of how I thought or started thinking about what our task was and everything from a planning standpoint to, you know, actual building design. Wow. I, I, thanks for describing that because I, I've not heard of that before because it's very uh, personal. It's, it, it's very personal. Yeah, actually, it's funny. Um, I was talking to a, uh, a younger person, and I, I came to realize that uh, it was uh, dealing with a sick father or parent um, and navigating the 
healthcare uh, uh, systems that he was involved in uh, that led me to understand how much better we could do. So it was firsthand experience. And likewise, watching my children grow up through uh, public education spaces and or that, those environments, I realized what, how much effect an architect or the environment that we create can have on that learning experience. And so it's very, very much uh, personal and it almost starts, there's an old adage about architecture being an old, old, well, it used to be an old man's profession, now it's an old person's profession. I think it's because of that. I think it's the experience of life and understanding the human condition that good architects have picked up on and can create beautiful buildings, functional buildings, but also buildings that just feel good to be in. They address the human condition. I've been on a, um, I wouldn't say a kick, it's str much stronger than a kick, lady, about beauty and civility, how important it is. What's your thought oh on that? <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, I always, uh, I thought that uh, um, beauty and civility, I like that. I'm going to steal that from you if you don't mind. Um, yeah, I, I mean, if there's no reason ever to be uncivil. Um, and beauty, of course, takes so many forms, and it's always in the eye of the beholder. Uh, my wife is an architect, and you know we we see things a bit differently, which always makes um, uh, working together on a project sometimes challenging. Um, sometimes my my inner beauty comes out in in creating a tension in the architecture. It might be a window that isn't quite centered, or it might be a mass that feels like it's ready to teeter off the building. Um, but that tension I, I put in there, I don't know. I mean, it's it's maybe an inside joke or maybe it's, uh, it's a um, way to keep people guessing. I don't know. But it, it's, I look at it and I go, that's beautiful. I, I, you know, and so many of the pieces of architecture that I've seen and buildings I've seen that I call beautiful have something underlying, I think, in them. That, uh, that speak to that. The uh, another one I wanted to ask about about constraints in architecture. How I've I've heard that it 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 can actually help or assist in the architecture. What's your your take on that? Absolutely. Um, it's you know the I remember coming up through the uh, the years, and you know the code book is something that helps us because it. Uh, well, there's this aspect of looking at a blank sheet of paper and there's a lot of fear with that blank sheet of paper. So let's just start at the beginning, right? Some people cannot put that first line down, one thing they're beholden to it. But what a constraint does is it, it gives you a piece of paper with a grid on it or a piece of paper with property lines or whatever, whatever that constraint is. So you're not, almost never are you dealing with a blank sheet of paper. Um, the constraints can help you get moving and they can also force you into creative solutions. Um, I believe that you can, you can accomplish anything. I mean, money aside, um, because there's a way around a problem. And if you think of constraints as problems, and I don't necessarily think all constraints are problems, but they're a problem to solve. Uh, some of the, God, the most exciting buildings I've seen or the exciting projects are ones where 
um, there was something that had to be overcome. Uh, are you familiar with the um, Face Study House program that came out of LA in the 30s and 40s and 50s? Not yet. Oh, you need to. It's it's old. It's a it's a it's a every architect knows about it. So whoever's listening will know about this. But most people don't realize that the, most of those lots, that those things were built on, were cheap quote unbuildable lots because the people couldn't you know afford to build a house in Beverly Hills. So they they found these lots that were inexpensive and they hired these architects or they awarded these architects to come in and cleverly figure out how to build on them. And we revere these these homes, this particular thing, and the whole process is is just really high in our. I'm going to call it our kind of architecture DNA, at least American architecture DNA. We think a lot about that process and the and the um, opportunities that were taken and the direction it sent. So many design, uh, both residential and commercial. Uh, yeah, you should look it up. Uh, Arts and Architecture magazine was the uh, magazine that sponsored it. Uh, there's this whole great book about it called The Case Study Houses. It's it's really cool. If you happen to ever be in LA, I'll be happy to loan you my copy of it. So, oh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate but, that. But those constraints, and you've seen them. I mean, you've even it's not just a modern thing. Like um, the Flatiron Building can be thought of one because you've got this building or these streets that came together at an acute angle. So they filled the site, which is kind of a developer thing, but how they filled that design gave an endearing identity to a building. It's well over 100 years old now, I believe, um, that everyone knows. It's iconic. It's it's the Flatiron Building. So uh, that's an idea, or that's maybe a good example, simple example of how a constraint uh, can make a building a hell of a lot better than it maybe could have been or would have been. I love what you said about civility. You should always be in a, in a state of civility or at least engage in civility. Can you explain to your audience how that, what that means for you? Um, there's an old line. Well, no, I won't even talk about that line. But, well, civility is, is again, I talk about the human condition in my, my, my work and the work that I appreciate. Um, you know, I mean, it goes all the way back to the golden rule, you know, do unto others be kind to people, all those things, things your mother told you to, to do and, and, and be. Um, but when, when I think about the interaction of people, I, I, want, I want there to be a civil discourse. Um, when I think about interactions of people, I want it to be beneficial for both or for the group or for what have you. And again, I deal mostly in space and in creating space and buildings and environments inside and out and and so what I want I want that same relationship to um, I want that those people to be affected in that same positive manner uh, it's it's as simple as creating buildings with enough light and access to air and outdoor that people feel good that's that's a civil that's it's human decency right if you think about civility being a level of human decency, you're treating somebody as you want to be treated. Um, we have complete power in our uh, creating our world of making sure everybody feels good about being in a space. Uh, there was this uh, attempted dorm 
at UC Santa Barbara. I don't, again, I don't know if you read about this, but it was huge, 4,000 beds or something. I mean, that's just enormous. And um, the idea of how they were going to save a lot of money in space was a number of the rooms, quite a few of the rooms, wouldn't have windows. They would have these fake windows. And you know, when I read about this and uh, when I, you know, some donor was giving away $200 million to them to build this great idea. I mean, my heart just sank into my uh, stomach. And I just, you know, I cried for humanity. Can you, I, I just can't imagine the thinking that, that where have we, where have we gone or what have we, why are we ignoring what we know, right? And to build something that big, to be so egregious to the human condition, just really. Uh, and it wasn't that the building itself has saddened me. It was that it got as far as it did before. It's been killed, by the way. They're, they're not going to build it. Um, but the fact that it it got us, that anyone for a moment thought this was a good idea, you know, when, when we're trying to create spaces that are human, you know, it's it was, um, it was, uh, <laughs> it was sad. Um, I think you at one point also asked me about my uh, like my favorite quote. I think that was sure. one of the things I asked about because uh, this goes plays right into that, and it's uh, I think it's I think it's attributed to Winston Churchill, which is man is the only animal who shapes his environment, which shapes him. Um, that's my that's that's why we do what we do, you know. And so this dorm is like. What are you trying to create you know, out of these people? But when you give somebody a, an ocean view or a, just a view in light and air, you're giving them a good environment, which hopefully will shape them to be good people. Again, that idea of civility. Um, I can't imagine um, people being angry when they're when they're you know Maslow's um, hierarchy, right? If you're taken care of, you at least don't have that onus on your back to to carry a, a level of anger well stated you're listening to the architecture and innovation podcast we're talking today with mark schumann architect and design principal at anderson brule architects for more information feel free to visit aba-arc.com that's a b a hyphen A-R-C-H dot com. Mark, you talked to, you said some terrific, terrific uh, insights and inputs and experiences. What about light in architecture? What's light mean for you in architecture? Oh, it's, it's what we paint with. Um, when I was a student, so this is a long time ago, um, you know, we used to have to do these studies. Uh, it was all done by hand, and it was um, you used to have to show shadows on the on the face of the building when you're doing elevations, black and white. You know, color wasn't allowed. It was all about the shadows you cast. Well, shadows are cast by light, right? And and we used to design a lot in section because we didn't have the computer 3D renderings that we or uh, realizations that we can do now. And we would draw these shadows in on those elevations because it was important, I was trained, that it was important to have light come into the building, that light be accessible to the building. Um, we're, again, rediscovering this after the invention of the fluorescent tube, but 
um, environmentally speaking, I mean, daylighting saves so much energy if we can light a building appropriately, right? Well, guess what else it does? It creates environments that people can enjoy to work in. It feeds their, it gives them vitamin D, you know, maybe you can get off that uh, vitamin D uh, uh, milk, you know. And <laughs> so now the lactose intolerant can cannot worry about it. They still can get their vitamin D at work. But no, um, they feel better about where they work. You're saving energy. Um, you're connected because light usually comes through windows. You're connected to the outside environment. You know what's going on in your world. It's um, It's a win-win. I think for everybody and everything involved, energy, sustainability, the human condition. Um, I always go back and I look at old buildings that people find charming and they like, you know, the, these big studios with the big windows. One thing you'll find about these buildings is they're not real deep. They're, they're narrow buildings because they needed to get the light in. They didn't have like the fluorescent tubes, right? So they needed to get the light in. And then, they didn't have air conditioning also, so they had to be narrow so the breeze could go through. A um, couple things that people love about those spaces turns out to be amazingly sustainable ideas. Natural ventilation, natural lighting. Um, if we can get back to it, we are getting back to, I think, as certainly as our profession, if we, and I think a lot of developers are, are coming our way, but if we can just get everybody into that mindset uh, you know, we we can cut our energy use in our buildings, you know, hugely. I don't know the percentages. I can't quote that. But I I do it for that. And also, again, who doesn't like being in a light-filled space? That's you know, movie, movie uh, theaters aside, um, <laughs> one of my biggest challenges over the years is trying to get light into spaces that we have traditionally never put windows in. Gymnasiums are a great example. I designed this gymnasium uh, for a, a, a city. And the idea was this whole wall was glass and it faced the, the street so that as people went by, drove by, especially at night in winter, you know how in winter it's dark pretty early. So you're heading home and you look over and this light is pouring out onto the street from inside and you see people in activity and you see them pick up games, whatever, maybe it's a Zumba class or something. But it's like the idea is engaging that person who's driving by to understand that this is a this is a uh, offering their community has, that this is their community and they can partake. It's it, it, it's encouraging that. Um, the of course the biggest worry was broken windows, graffiti, you know, all these things. Um, we constantly get in both um, civic and educational uh, spaces uh, every reason why we don't want windows in these buildings. And it all has to come down to maintenance. Yeah, it's it's really, and with their studies, and I can't quote them, um, they're pretty old now, but children do better in daylit spaces. I know me growing up, if not for the window, I probably would have been kicked out of class because I needed the distraction, <laughs> right? I, daydreaming. <laughs> but there's a lot of, I mean, some of it is just finances. You know, you, a window costs more than not a window, right? So uh, other one is maintenance. The maintenance one drives me nuts because it's like, you know, well, we can't wash the windows. It's, you don't wash windows anyway. So what's being missed? 
Um, so it's a little frustrating that we have this opportunity to do all these great things and we don't do them. And I, I bet you every profession in the world has that, that what that is. You know, we don't have universal health care, which that would solve a lot of problems, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, it's a little thing I'm whining about here, but I think in the ar architectural world, and certainly in, in healing environments and learning environments and civic environments, the, they're so important, this tr um, transparency. You know, we we fear, we fear the the uh, active shooter now, that's, that's our latest, uh, and rightfully so, so, but when you look at the percentages of schools that have been attacked, it's a tiny, 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 there are 90,000 schools in America in the United States, and there are maybe a dozen that have, over the last 20 years, that have had uh, active shooters. But every school is affected by it. And it is so difficult to draw the line of perceived safety. And I say perceived safety, not that they aren't safe, but that they need to be safe. And creating an environment where a student, a faculty member, a staff member feels empowered, feels good, feels like it's part of a community. You know, I my kids went to a school with no fences around it. You know, talk about crazy. Um, um, I I loved it. I'm glad my kids got to experience it. They're not that old. I mean, this is a, a school here in Claremont. Um, but I, <laughs> every school I've designed, like where's the barrier and all that stuff, super important. I'm not discounting it, but it is such a challenge to do it well so that people don't feel like they're going into a prism or going in, you know, like, like is it to keep people in or keep people out? Well, during active shooter, it's kind of both, right? So it's it's just such a hard, hard line. And I, I applaud every architect who can figure it out and, and or can convince a client to do it right. I just, it's so neat when you say, well, that's a clever way to provide the safety and still give the, the transparency and that idea of community engagement. You know, our buildings speak of us and to us. And, um, you know, we, we come armed with our own baggage and history of what that means. And so to have a, a, a school that feels welcoming um, is huge because it's part of our community. But to have a school that turns its back on its neighborhood how does that, how do you feel about your neighborhood when, when the school or the library is saying, here, enter, enter here, but I'm not going to show you what's going on, you know, and I, it's such a difficult problem. So. So well stated, Mark, really. Thank you. You're, you're listening. <laughs> a terrific show. I, I always felt my ears were my best tools. I, you know. Oh. Hearing what, hearing what people need. And that's one of my, gosh, it's such a hard, this is the fine line is to, how do you, how do you alleviate people's fears without dismissing them? And, and I don't think I do a good job of that. I think sometimes people think I don't care. Well, you definitely care. And I'll, and I'll share with your audience uh, a, a one facet of that. Um, we're talking today with architect Mark 
Schumann of Anderson Brulee Architects. Our uh, public service for Mark's show today is Shoes That Fit. One day, every child in America will be empowered to step forward into a bright future. That's the vision at Shoes That Fit. Every day, Shoes That Fit is much more about the shoes than the shoes. It's the confidence children need to step forward into a brighter future. Their mission is to tackle one of the most visible signs of poverty in America by giving children in need new athletic shoes to attend school with dignity and joy, prepared to learn, play, and thrive. For more information, you can visit their website at shoesthatfit.org. Mark, how and why is that or- the organization so important to you? Um, it's a local organization, for one thing. I know the president of, uh, uh, she's a good friend of mine. Our children went to school together. But even before she was in that position, you know, they started here in town. They just had this billboard in a, not billboard, bulletin board um, in our local bakery, some crust bakery. I'll just shout out for them. And it was such a tangible thing to do is you pull a card off the board with someone's name and their shoe size and a little story about them, maybe a little message about them. And you go and you buy them a pair of shoes. You're not giving money for someone to do something. You're not, you are literally shotting. Is that the right word? Shoeing? Yeah. Shotting this, yeah, this it child. Is. It is. And it just sounds wrong. It, <laughs> it felt good because it was so, it was, it was, it, you had to go to the store and buy it. You had to figure out, well, you know, it's a 10 year old boy. What 10-year-old boy doesn't like this kind of shoe or whatever? So that's where my wife and I first started getting involved in that. And then again, being local, you know, we've donated ourselves, our time to help with fundraising and such, uh, whether it was designing a, a new bulletin board or doing some renderings for their, their shooting to build their own or uh, rent their own uh, facility or buy their own facility uh, to house these shoes. They've gotten so much larger in those early days. It's really impressive. Um, but they they match what they just talked about, this dignity idea. Um, this is one of the reasons I love doing educational environments. I love doing elementary schools and, and middle schools and high schools because in the same fashion that they are they need that they need that dignity. they need a, they need to know that they're attending school, that this is a, an important aspect of the world uh, of the of the uh, culture. And you think about the schools from the 19th and 20th, early 20th century, and maybe to the, you know, they were palaces compared. They were columns and, you know, you walked up a thousand steps to get to them because they were, it was this, you were attaining something. It was a big deal to go to school. I mean, a lot of kids back in the 19th century never had that opportunity. So it was, is Harold. Well, there's, there's a lot of like pride that comes with that. And in the architects that I've worked with, the firms, uh, Anderson Berlay in particular, you know, we we take we want that part to be or we want that to be part of the message that the district or the school is sending is that this that this kids, this child's education is important enough that we're going to put them in a space that is equal to um, our great edifices, city halls, libraries, libraries are another place that 
um, we we want to create um, spaces of dignity. Dignity. We want neighborhoods to feel welcome there uh, because they represent again that neighborhood. And I I love this little thing. Um, you know, a library is kind of the one civic civic engagement, which is almost always positive. You know, you're not going there to fight city hall. You're not going there to complain about a ticket or your water bill or whatever. You're going there to to be part of a, a community. So this building should speak of that, right? Um, so I like their message that this child, through this just simple act of a new pair of shoes or a decent pair of shoes, feels better about themselves. A simple act of providing a, a, a space that they can learn in that has everything they need, but also is something that the community can be proud of, is a, it's simple. And it, it reflects on them because it reflects on the community. Um, I can remember one of my early elementary schools. Uh, the kids were so enamored with it. And I got this story back from the principal where the, this kid was waiting in line going down the corridor and he got, he inadvertently drew on the wall with a pencil. You know, he had like the pencil out. And I guess the poor kid was in tears because he just felt so bad about marring this new school, this wonderful edifice that was built for him. Um, and then we took him out and beat him. No, we didn't say something. No, and it, but it was that that thing like you know, give people some something crappy, they'll treat it like crap. If you give people something nice, they'll treat it better. I mean, that's I think that's the human nature. I mean, I've watched nice things also be treated poorly, so I don't know. I don't know anymore. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, but I'm I have to watch myself. You. I'm a very sarcastic person, and sometimes I realize if you don't see my face, which you don't in podcasts, um, <laughs> people might think, "Wow, this guy's crazy." <laughs> not so, not so. I'll vouch for you that, Mark. Talk just a, a bit about legacy. I wanted to ask you about legacy. I wasn't thinking of until now. Is what type of legacy do you like? leaving not leaving like you're leaving somewhere but uh, of of providing a, the legacy that you you well, like to be a, recognized for a forward legacy let's put it that way you, you know i i know what it is i was thinking what am i going to say there but you know i've done it just millions of square feet of building you know and the biggest one is a medical center in downey and the smallest one is uh in the medical field is this little addition to a clinic right so i mean there's a whole wide range schools houses super expensive houses, little additions to houses for friends, kitchen remodels, stuff like that. Um, but I don't think my legacy is going to lie in the buildings because, I mean, they, they serve their purpose, but I don't know if, if anything I've built has been, you know, revolutionary in its sense of changing the way architecture is done or what have you. I just, I don't think I'm that kind of architect. Um, but what what I hope to do, because I'm and here's the other thing, I'm only one person. I'm 40 years into, into this um, career, and I should count, but you know, I've done hundreds of buildings. But let's face it, this world is huge. And so I think my legacy, my lasting legacy, won't be an edifice, but it'll be the attitudes that I bring to building edifices. Edify edifices. It'll be the attitude of how we should be engaging with our environment that I bestow upon 
that sounds rude, that I can share with um, the next generation of architects through teaching. I taught at Cal Poly Pomona about 20 years ago. And I realized I could build one building or I can affect 30 people who are going to build 30 buildings. Um, in the studio, uh, we, you know, I want, I want, it's more than just, Hey, draft this, do this. It's here's why we're doing this. We're creating these spaces. This is very important. I had, um, this is at a previous job, but this young woman uh, came to work, recent graduate, um, came to work for us and she came by and said hi to me. Uh, I was a principal and there's her, her second day at work, so I don't know. And she said something to me um, that um, she says, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, no, I'm afraid not. I was a little embarrassed. And she goes, well, no, it's been years, but I was, I was here as a graduating high school student. And you were asked a question or I asked you, why, why would I be an architect? Cause she wanted to be an engineer and she was kind of questioning that. I, and I, I basically gave her that quote I mentioned. I said, well, we, we shaped the world that shaped us. How, what's more important than that? Right. And, um, she became an architect and you know, you know that every day that she's working, she is working to make the world a better place. And so now there's two of us, right? Now I'll tell you, there's other people who've worked in my sphere and, and people who have affected me in the same way. This isn't Mark Schumann saving the world. This is Mark Schumann, <laughs> one of, I think, I, 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 don't, I can't imagine an architect in, a, in the United States today, let alone the world, who isn't thinking in these terms of saving the world. I just can't imagine it because it is, it's, it's our world and we build it and it needs to be right. It needs to be sustainable. Yeah. Mark, I don't know how, to, how you can talk what you just shared. I mean, this is a, such an outstanding show, but what would you like to share with your audience today that we may not have talked about or touched on? Um. You know, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I will tell you, I mean, for young people who are thinking, I might be listening to this, who are in school and for architecture or thinking about being an architect, it's a great profession. And, and it's a, it's, a, it's, it pays well. Um, it's hard. It's frustrating, but it's so rewarding uh, when you see somebody get what they need. Um, what else would I, you know, I should have probably thought about something like this before. No, I kind of hit you out of nowhere. No, yeah. Um, you know, obviously hire me. I mean, that's always an important <laughs> thing, right? Hire Anderson Play Architects. You have our, our website number. Um, no, I, I, I um, well, I'm going to go back to what you started with about civility and beauty. I, I want, I would love for everybody to think about their environments in those two terms and how can they make this world, which seems to be at odds right now, you know, what can, part can they play in making it a beautiful and civil place? Um, is it building something? Is it reaching to a neighbor? Is it helping a neighbor? I don't know. I mean, it's, you're, everyone, everyone has a part in this. Um, smiling at the person who's walking towards you, you know, that's, Sometimes difficult to do, I get, but man, it makes a big difference. Um, I don't know, I could probably go on for another half hour about what I want to share, but I've loved what uh, what the questions you've asked. I think that they, they're pretty good insight to 
how how I am, how my firm is, um, how my the people I hang with are. You know, it's it's pretty good. Mark, it's been a real honor and pleasure having you here today. Thank you well, very it's much. Been absolutely, my pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me on the podcast. I've enjoyed listening to the other ones. I hope that this one is as enjoyable. Oh, Mark, terrific show, really. Our guest today has been Mark Schumann, architect and design principal at Anderson Brule Architects. For more information, feel free to visit their website at aba-arc.com. That's aba-arch.com. The Architecture and Innovation Podcast is recorded from the office of Sarah Gladden, Redmond, Washington, and on location. The executive producer and host of the Architecture and Innovation Podcast is yours truly, Tom Tioro, and the chief audio engineer is Eris Jacopoulos. We look forward to you joining us again next time. Thank you for listening. Cereclad is a high-performance fiber cement siding system in one size with triple coat technology and 365 days of self-cleaning, along with a 20-year fade limited warranty. Cereclad also offers hundreds of design options. For more information, feel free to visit cereclad.com.